It's December 10th, 2020. This is Rook. Five years ago, she was halfway up the mountain on her way to reaching the peak of Mount Everest when an earthquake and avalanche nearly took her life and ended up killing hundreds of others. Nevertheless, Sarah Safadi is undaunted in her mission to become the first Iranian to ever climb the seven summits, the highest peaks in the world, and she's already got six under her belt. Her story is one of inspiration and empowerment and creating awareness for the rights of women and girls, and she's getting her PhD this week to boot. A feature your interview with Sarah Safadi today, plus the inaugural installment of It's All Persian to Us with Kian Nademi. I'm Gian Gomeshi. This is Rook. Hi there, welcome to episode number 69 of Rook. We are on our ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. We're coming to you on SoundCloud, Instagram, Spotify, iTunes, Telegram, YouTube for this variety program. We hope you are well out there. Hi, Shaya June. Hello, Zianja. How you doing, buddy? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Just good. Middling, uh, you're okay. Yeah, I'm. Uh, some days I'm not at the highest mood. So I see. Yeah, but and I'm some days I'm you're, you're, you are at the highest mood. <laughs> so today's. We should have a new segment. It's a riveting conversation <laughs> with Shai and I. How's Shai doing <laughs> yeah. today? Uh, Shai, did I text you? I'm not sure that I uh, texted you last night. I was texting a few friends of mine about Paolo Rossi. No. You heard about Paolo Rossi? No. I thought you were into, into football. Yes, yes, but I, I have. Do you know who Paolo Rossi yes, is? Yes, Italian. The great Italian yeah. football player died. Oh. Yeah, the news broke last night. So rest in peace, Paolo Rossi. It's weird. Like within two weeks, we've lost Diego Maradona, Paolo yeah. Rossi. It's like a God's creating some dream team up in <laughs> you know, yes. heaven of all these players. Yeah. Hello, fabulous Kian. Hello, Gian. I still don't have an adjective for you all. That's okay. Give me you don't have week. to say that every show. <laughs> but uh, but uh, you like to work out. Yes, yes, I do. Yes. Have you ever tried climbing a mountain, Keon? I have not. It's Okay, it's expensive and it's very time consuming. So if you're going to commit to it, it's it's a lifestyle. Oh, so you've actually yeah. thought about so it. So I've thought, thought about it. Huh. I think I'm once I ran out of other things to do with my life, I think I will finally want Did to Did you do think that. about it because of our future guest today? Is that why no, you in oh. general, I mean, there's only a limited amount of experiences in life. And climbing a mountain, I feel, is one of those experiences that would be mm. worth committing to. But again, it's expensive mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. it's time consuming. Is there a limited amount of experiences well, in life? <laughs> from oh. my <laughs> is there a list somewhere? No, no. These are the experiences in life. A limited <laughs> amount of experiences are the, that are worth experiencing from ah. my perspective okay. in Kian's world. Mm -hmm. Yes. There's Horace de Bottom June. There's Hormis Abzi. There's climbing a mountain. Have you ever gone mountain oh, oh, climbing? No. 
I don't, I, I can't even, I mean, I love the idea of it and I full on respect, I mean, admire people who have done it. I can't imagine it. I've got a little bit of vertigo. When I was a kid, like in grade three, I was on a the top of a portable. You know what portables are? Like it's like the, a the toilets or no? Right? Well, what's a portable? <laughs> you can talk about the time of the month again. The port- no. no, the portable is. Uh, <laughs> you know, Chef Hoss left me a message after the last show. <laughs> And he's like, uh, I, uh, I love that girl. I love that girl. Uh, uh, she's she talks about everything. She is she talks about the taboo. You know, it's well, like you say portable. That's the I think of a portable. No portables. <laughs> I, maybe this is a Canadian thing. I uh, think so. Well, I'm Canadian. You're Canadian. You? Yeah. Well, but well, portables. When we were growing up, it's like a when the school when there's too many kids in the in the school, oh. the school yeah outgrow it. They put these temporary right, right. sort of things up called portables, where you learn a, a, in a. It's kind of like a, a I don't know a shack, <laughs> a nice shack. Anyway, <laughs> I climbed on top of the portable for some reason when I was on top of a little house. Imagine that, yeah. all right? And uh, I guess I was like uh, eight or something, and then I fell down. On my head. Oh my yeah, god! Yeah, I felt boom right down. So since then, that actually explains a lot. I, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Go on. Think, Finish your story. I think that's my thing. With, uh, I mean, I've lived in tall apartment buildings in New York or whatever. I can, I can, I can be somewhere high, but in terms of like dangling off a mountain looking down and then thinking about where my foot has to go and my, there's no chance. So you don't think you'll ever be able to do it. Like no, small... I don't. No, do I have to be able to do? I mean, w- well, what about indoor climbing? No, uh, well, n- no, I, I'm it's not. Safe. There's yeah. other things I can do, like okay. playing football. So in your yeah. world, it's not an experience worth having. Even though there's a limited, there's like a list of ten <laughs> things in the world that we can do. I, that's not one of them. That's correct for me. What's, what's one? <laughs> Thank that... you. That which makes it all the more wild for me that um, this Sarah Safadi, our guest, our feature guest coming up today. I mean, I feel like this every show, but I feel you know, like, feel like people should listen to our, you, mm. oh my God, stay and listen to this whole interview in case you tune in for the first 10 minutes and fall asleep when you're listening to this podcast or something. But I mean, the last episode, Ali Samad Yahadi, I want everybody to hear every word of this incredible man who's also dealing with cancer right now. But this Sarah Safadi, I hope people stick around and hear her whole story because it, it, it's such an inspiration. She's this self-described simple engineer. Um, so she's an Iranian woman who came, uh, when she was 20 years old, came to the United States and uh, gets into her engineering degree, starts teaching engineering, and then um, kind of daring herself to climb Mount Everest, had no experience at all, and becomes this kind of champion mountain climber. Do you know you know what the seven summits are, Captain Reza? Uh, the seven the tallest mountains in That's the world. That's right. Each there? each continent has a uh, massive mountain. So like Mont Blanc in uh, in Europe and mm-hmm. Kilimanjaro in Africa and McKinley or it's called like Denali or something like that in, in Alaska. So you climb seven of those and very, 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 very few people in the world have ever done this. And certainly no Iranians have done it. And so she's aiming to be the first and she's done them all except for Everest. Mm-hmm. And she's tried Everest, but was caught in this epic um, and very tragic avalanche in 2015. She obviously survived it and has decided to keep climbing you know, to keep going back at it, partly in in the cause of raising awareness around uh, 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 child marriage and and human trafficking and this group she works with, Empower Nepali Girls. So she's just got um, 
it's an amazing story what this woman is doing. This. Yeah, yeah. She's and she's getting her PhD in engineering, of course. You know, <laughs> what else? Would Iranian. She you know, she's getting a PhD in engineering, and you know, arguably going to be. I mean, if she does Everest, she's done six others. She becomes the first Iranian to ever climb the seven summits. Wow. In fact, I think I was reading that there wasn't even a. I mean. Climbing these mountains is a relatively new thing, you know, like a like Sir Edmund Hillary or whatever his name was, the first guy who climbed uh, Everest was only in the 20th century. It wasn't like hundreds of years ago. Mm -hmm. So and I think the first woman climber uh, to reach at the top of Everest was only 30 years ago or something was mid 1980s. So, yeah. So the fact that she's I mean, she's, you know, she's a remarkable specimen. This uh, Sarah Safadi. Do you know the name of the highest mountain in Iran? Mm. Zagros? No. Kuhe. Kuhe Mashar. Actually, when I say oh. its name, you say, oh, yeah. Okay, go ahead. Damovand. Nope. Zero, nothing. Damovand. Oh, yeah, Damovand. Kuhe Damovand. Where is that? Uh, north of Tehran. Uh, yeah. Do people climb it? Yes, yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Shia. Huh. Very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was interesting. <laughs> it was, it was interesting. It, it was, was actually interesting. Kuhe Damovand. Yeah. So it's in Tehran? Like in the it's the one you see from when yes, you, the mountain in Tehran. Yes, yeah. when the weather is clear you can see. All right. You know uh so anyway, Sarah Safadi um, who has some experience with this stuff joining us in a few moments and um, I'm very very excited to get to talk to her and excavate her story. Today, uh, Groovy Shy Captain Reza is a very exciting day. Mm. Do you want to ask me why? Why? I'll tell you. Because we are debuting a new segment today entitled It's All Persian to Us with Kion Nadami, which is actually just Kion. Just right here, this one. Well, I figured by adding her last name, it sounds more official. A new segment called It's All Persian to Us with Kian Nadami. Oh, with Kian Nadami. How interesting. You know, if I just say Kian, there's like, well, what, how's that different from what you guys normally do? Is she, been, so, is she better than the uh, fabulous Kian? Yes. Well, you'll just have to that's see. Right, that's right. Who is this new Kian Nadami? <laughs> and then we get to the segment, they're like, wait, what? Her? Oh. I should put on a British accent to pretend <laughs> I'm someone else. You know, I didn't, I'm not sure I liked that fabulous Kian, but this Kian Nadami. She's got jazz. So, um, uh, are you ready for your new segment? That's coming up after Sarah Sarafi. I, you know, I can only imagine we're not going to be that impressed with Sarah Sarafi, but your segment (laughs) coming up after it. It's going to be a huge disappointment (laughs) compared to her. No, so as someone that grew up outside of Iran, both of us, actually, I'm sure we, you as well, we've been on this journey of trying to discover our roots and uh, understand the beautiful yet complicated culture that we have. And so I'm going to take you guys along this journey with me on this. uh, It's all Persian to us. By the way, Keon, let me ask you something. Do you know the name of the highest mountain in Iran? (laughs) Damavand. Damavand. (laughs) Kuhidarband, the restaurant in Toronto. (laughs) We also have something else that uh, we're debuting at the end of today's show. I don't know if it's a debut, although I think he told me they haven't really played it anywhere else yet. It's a new song 
from our dear friend Arshid Azarin. Yes. Uh, Arshid Azarin, the great jazz piano player based in Paris, uh, the Iranian-French uh, piano player, musician, composer, and heart surgeon, right? <laughs> Hero of the COVID situation in France. Naturally. These, these Iranian, it, it's, it's an exercise in just feeling shitty about yourself. <laughs> Every single show, right? We bring on people who are more impressive than the four of us put together. It's not enough for him to be a heart surgeon. <laughs> You're done, buddy. Ask your mother if, why you can't be a, a mountain climber and a PhD in engineering. She's as, still like, disappointed like that I'm not Sarah. a doctor, so <laughs> let's start there. But you've got a doctor. <laughs> oh. You've netted yourself yeah. a doctor. So uh, this Arshid Azanin, he's composed a new song. Um, his mother composed the lyrics. His Iranian mom composed the lyrics to this, I think, is what he told me. And uh, the great vocalist Makon Ashkvari, is that how you Malkana say it? Malkana Ashkvari. Uh, Malkana Ashkvari. Uh, he's got a beautiful voice. Yes, yes. He's singing on this song. So we're going to get to, we're going to play that song at the end of this episode, Shia. Perfect. Yeah. All right. Have we done all of our business? I think we're done. All Where right. are we? Let me just say that uh, for all things Rook, our website, rookmedia.com, rookmedia.com, where you can see all of our previous episodes, including the most immediately previous episode, uh, Ali Samadi Ahadi, which we really recommend you check out, uh, rookmedia.com, our patrons page is there as well, the fabulous Keon, Captain Reza, Groovy Shia. We'll get back to you all in just a few moments. Let's get to our feature guest. Our featured guest today is a mountain climber aiming to be the first Iranian in history to climb those seven summits we've been discussing. That is the seven highest peaks on each continent around the world. And she's already made it to the summit of six of them, all except Mount Everest. And therein lies a tale, as we were saying. Sarah Safari is an author, speaker, mountain climber, college professor, electrical engineer, and advocate for women's empowerment. She was born in Iran and moved to California in 2002 at the age of 20 to continue her education in electrical engineering. While teaching at California State University Fullerton, Sarah somewhat spontaneously took up a challenge to climb Mount Everest to raise funds and awareness for girls who are victims of human trafficking and forced into early marriage. This led to a serious journey into mountain climbing. Sarah made an attempt at Everest, and while on the way to the summit in 2015, was caught in an avalanche that killed some of her fellow climbers and left her with the trauma and perspective of a near-death experience. Undaunted, Sarah decided to continue her climbing for the cause close to her heart and is now a board member and director of development for the Empower Nepali Girls Organization, and she has dedicated one of her books, Follow My Footsteps, to this organization. She has become a global spokesperson for women's empowerment and realizing one's dreams and has been featured in all kinds of TV programs and publications, as well as doing a TEDx talk. Among her distinctions, Sarah has received the Global Citizen Award from the United Nations Association, the Award for Outstanding Practice and Broad Impact in the Area of Women and Leadership from the International Leadership Association. And in case that wasn't all enough, she is also finishing her PhD dissertation on leadership and change in a matter of days but first yeah sarah five days sarah safari <laughs> joins me from irvine california hello hi hi thank you for having me thank you for the 
such a kind introduction. Uh, it's it's a pleasure to have you on. It's an honor. In fact, first of all, I'm terribly self-conscious that I'm keeping you from working on your PhD dissertation <laughs> in five days. Should you not be studying right now? Is there is there anything yeah. we could do to help? <laughs> <laughs> no, I've been studying since 7 a.m., so this is a good break. All right. So you, you, you compartmentalize like an engineer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and, and just to clarify, uh, let me see. So you're a record-breaking Iranian mountain climber woman who's also getting your PhD in teaching engineering. Is it fair to typecast you as an overachiever? I wouldn't say that's an overachiever uh, because I'm not attached to the result. So even though this whole journey started from uh, climbing Mount Everest and I still haven't made it to the top of Everest, I really don't care about standing on top of Everest. If it happens, that's great. But what I'm really excited about is the change that is happening along the way, meeting new people, helping women all over the world and fundraising and, you know, just all the positive changes that are happening in me and around me so it's not about achieving it's more about making a difference uh, that's beautifully said although i'm going to put um phd global spokesperson and, and mountain climber historic mountain climber in the category of overachiever uh, of iranian <laughs> iranian perfectionist overachiever just i, I mean um this this is an extremely rare feat. The seven summits. Let me just uh, get that out of the way. Explain what we're talking about here. This is a. There's. I was reading about this. It's a very elite group of climbers who have reached uh, what is colloquially sometimes called the Explorers Grand Slam. That is getting to the peaks of the seven highest mountains on seven respective continents. I know that only a few hundred folks have ever done this. Less than a hundred women in the world ever, and no one of Iran. Iranian descent, and you've climbed six of the seven. Is that right? Only Everest remains? Yes, only Everest remains. And I've tried it a bunch of times. I still haven't made it to the top. <laughs> so when did you do the other six? I mean, is that over a period of years? How long does it take to do Kilimanjaro and the other big mountains? Well, originally, I never had a plan to do seven summits. And I just wanted to climb Everest, do my fundraising and finish and be done with it until I got stuck in the avalanche. So uh, the very first one, the very first uh, out of seven summits, Aconcagua in Argentina, which is the highest peak in South America that I climbed was back in 2013. But that was just in preparation for Mount Everest. I had no idea what are seven summits and I had zero intentions of climbing the seven summits. So I uh, never wanted to do this. So the very first one happened like seven years ago. And then all the other ones, as soon as I decided to climb the seven summits, happened in two years, which is from 2016 to 2018. What is your, um, what, what kind of regular regimen? What is your routine these days? Uh, I'm going to get to all kinds of questions about your story, but I'm just curious in between, of course, doing a PhD dissertation. What is your, um, do, do you have to, I mean, climb every day or do you go running or do you lift weights or what, what, what do you do to, 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 to keep your uh, climbing chops in order as you prepare for the next uh, attempt at Everest in the coming months or years? 
Well, my COVID schedule wasn't anything close to my mountain climbing schedule because my gym uh, closed down, so I couldn't go to the gym anymore and I couldn't see my trainer anymore. Because of the fires in California, all the mountains were closed down, so I couldn't go hiking and climbing. So it's been, a f- in the past five, six months, it's been actually very challenging to train the way I really want to train. But uh, that was a very positive thing for my PhD dissertation, so I don't mind it. But on a regular basis, when there is no fires and no COVID, well, I train twice a day in the morning and in the afternoon. Uh, morning is cardio, afternoon afternoon is weightlifting, and uh, usually one day of the week I go hiking. And uh, if I'm going on a climb that I have to carry, let's say, 120 pounds on my back, since I'm 120 pounds myself, then I have to train with uh, carrying heavy weight um, all over the mountain. And then even at home, when I'm washing dishes, when I'm cooking, I always carry a heavy backpack to make sure that my body stays in shape. Wow. You're only 120 pounds. <laughs> and so you're, mm-hmm. so you're making some khorish to badem june and you're carrying around a heavy backpack. <laughs> Is that? It's quite an image, Uh, (laughs) and and, uh, I mean, you've said a lot there. Is what is the most? uh, Like, I I know nothing about this. This, uh, I wish I did. I have some friends who are climbers. I mean, nothing like you, but but I they they happen to be in in incredible shape. I mean, what is the most physical element of being a good climber? Is it endurance? Is it arm strength? What do you most work on? No, actually, for mountain climbers, we have to make sure we don't have much muscles on because muscles, they need a lot of oxygen to perform. And if we have a lot of muscles on higher elevations, like above 20,000 feet, when there's kind of no oxygen, there's lack of oxygen, it's so hard on the body. Usually people who have a lot of muscles and bulky, it's so hard for them to climb mountains. So you want to be as skinny as possible. You want to have a very good heart. Um, so it's like I uh, and I only work on my lower body, my upper body. I kind of don't care about it because, you know, the, uh, in hiking, in uh, alpinism, we usually are walking most of the time. And even when we are climbing an ice wall, uh, most of the weight is on our legs. The legs are doing most of the work. So, um Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. That's fascinating. So, so even though, I mean, in my mind's eye, I'm thinking about climbers. So you don't propel yourself up with arms, like by, by pulling yourself, like don't you need the strength to be able to pull your body weight? Or, and the, well, na- and the knapsack? To, yeah, you have to be able to hold yourself for a few seconds with your arms. But the majority of the time, uh, we have crampons, which is a spiky shoes. So if we are climbing an ice wall, um, and we have a spikes right in front of uh, the toes. So I kick my foot so strong to the wall that my uh, my whole weight is on my feet rather than my legs are doing most of the work rather than my arms and upper body. That's fascinating. And so now this makes sense. I would you would never see uh, you you would never see the rock. You would never see like a huge bulky guy uh, as a mountain climber because they they have to then use that weight and that would be a deterrent. I didn't think about and the oxygen becomes a, a factor too. Yeah, even if uh, they show up on the mountain, they have to leave very soon. They usually don't make it uh, at a very high elevation. It's fascinating. When you were a teenager in Iran, might you have imagined 
Sarah, that you would become globally known as an Iranian-American mountaineer who is known as one of history's groundbreaking mountain climbers? Never, ever. Like, I didn't, it wasn't even in my dreams. I never wanted to. I like nature. I would go out to mountains to eat a sandwich, but not to climb the mountain. Um no, I never ever imagined so such e- a thing. So, even though your name was Sarah Safari, that didn't tip off your uh, <laughs> that didn't that didn't leave you to think that you've got some sort of exploring to do or something. Well, I love traveling, and yes, I thought okay, my last name means that my probably grandpa was a traveler. I never met him, so I had no idea. I never heard the stories about him traveling or anything. And so uh, I just thought maybe in the future I'll be a person who travels a lot. And I love traveling and I traveled a lot. But I would say I'm more of an adventurer and a mountain climber than a traveler. I'm sure people have asked you if that's your real name, right? Because it seems like such yeah, a, it's like a rock star name for what you do. Yeah, It is my real name, <laughs> by the way. I, I want to get to the story of how you took up the challenge to take on Everest. I want to ask you about the Empower Nepali Girls mission. Uh, but take us back first. How, how would you describe, I mean, this is this show is uh, part of what we really like to focus on is, is uh, identity and who we are, those of us living in the diaspora of Iranian descent, of Middle Eastern descent. Uh, take us back to being in Iran. How would you describe Sarah as a kid growing up in Iran? I always had a lot of energy and a lot of fire, but since everybody around me keep uh, kept telling me that, well, be a good girl, you know, just don't do these crazy stuff. I was always wanted to compete and, you know, like be the, uh, like when the, I see the boys playing soccer, I wanted to go play with them. But then everybody's like, no, be nice, be kind. You don't have to do that. Just play like simple, I don't know, girly games, you know, just to do play with your dolls here. Why do you want to do all those crazy things? Those are for boys. So I kept, even though I would escape and I would do it, but I knew this is not a right thing for me to do. And I'm supposed to play with the girls over there. But I'm here playing soccer and biking, participating in a contest for biking with the boys because the girls wouldn't do it as fast as I wanted to. (laughs) So I was just always, I had a lot of fire and I always knew I cannot uh, maximize all these activities and I cannot participate the the way I want to participate. This was in Tehran? Yeah. And so so you were always... This, I mean, you seem like an ambitious personality to have taken on these challenges. That was always within you. You were saying, to a certain extent, however, that was diminished or suppressed by cultural expectations. Exactly. And I I saw women around me not uh, really pursuing their dreams, and they are kind of living in an environment that they're trying to limit themselves so that they can carry on their regular daily lives. And uh, that was just so sad. and uh, But I wasn't very aware of it. I always thought, well, this is normal. This is how everybody in the whole world is doing it. And uh, I didn't know until we moved to the U.S. And then uh, when I saw it for myself that, oh, there's so much more opportunities here. There's so much more that I can do. Uh, then I thought, I'm now I'm responsible. Now that I can do the things that I never could do, now, on behalf of all the women around the world who cannot do the things that 
it is possible here. Now I have to do it on their behalf and not just women, men too. And, uh, and then it became uh, my passion. I have to just say, it's it's quite sad, you know, just to, to, to pause there for a second. I mean, this becomes the... Um the expectation and sometimes the stereotype that you you know uh, you have to leave Iran to really live your dreams. We've heard that story a number of times, and particularly from um, some of our female guests. Um, and yet, when I when I hear it, it still makes me quite sad. As uh, uh, as people who love our Iranian backgrounds, you know, our relatives back in Iran, all of that, mm-hmm. to hear that in your case, for example, it really. It really, you really couldn't become who you wanted to become until you came west. That's what you're basically saying. Exactly, exactly. And and I'm very thankful for it. And I feel that this is such a privilege. And all of us who are here and we have all these opportunities, we need to use these opportunities to help all the other ones who don't have these opportunities. I mean, you've, you've described yourself as quite a shy kid when you first came to America. So, so you land in 2002 in California. What was the direction you would have expected your life to go in? I just, I was studying engineering back in Iran and I thought, well, I'm going to study engineering in a different university and I'm going to finish and I'm going to be an engineer for the rest of my life, which was the limit of my dreams. I didn't know there is more into this. And, and then I just thought, well, I'm going to get married and have two kids and that would be my life. And that's, mm-hmm. I'm going to be happy with it because uh, that was my standard back then. And how did you, when you first arrived, what was it like assimilating into California, into American culture, into uh, the streets, the, 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 the shops, the, the schools of America when you first arrived from Iran? Uh, at the beginning, I had a hard time because I was missing Tehran so much. And I kept going back and forth between Tehran and here and just, you know, I was, I felt like, I, I, I felt incomplete. I felt like half of me stayed in Iran and the other half is here. And I, I had a hard time actually at the beginning. I wouldn't understand the culture. I watched so many movies, but that wasn't enough to uh, really uh, bring me here and um, help me to get to know the culture or assimilate to the culture. So at the beginning, um, the first few years, actually, I was uh, really craving and ch- talking a lot with my friends in Iran. Uh, and I would tell them, you know, I don't understand some of the things that people are doing here. People are not the way we are in Iran and the culture is very different. And um, uh, believe it or not, I had a hard time. Uh, I was very shy, so I had a hard time. Uh, speaking English, even though I would understand because I took some English courses back in Iran. But, you know, I just wanted to talk with Iranian friends and I just Mm. wanted to hang out with them. And I just wanted to talk in Farsi because I missed Iran so much. Um, It's interesting because, you know, we expect that, especially, you know, in the 2000s, moving of all places to Southern California would be the most cushiony, you know, uh, move for an Iranian because you'll be surrounded by other Iranians from the diaspora. But uh, even so, that's uh, it's a difficult move. And, and you're suddenly in a, in a whole new place. I'm learning that um, there, there are few people who talk about arriving and say it was a very, very simple and easy transition. Yeah, I yeah, I have friends that I had a very easy transition, but and I'm so proud of them. It, I think they're great. 
but I had a hard time uh, just understanding, assimilating, and really arriving. I felt like I really arrived in the U.S. seven years into my uh, in, in, into my immigration. <laughs> what what was that? What happened seven years into your immigration? Uh, that's when I decided uh, I participated in a course, actually. Uh -huh. uh, and that's the same course that uh, in the next one I decided to climb Mount Everest. Okay. And my, my professor at UCLA told me that I have low self-confidence and I need to do something about it. And that's when I decided to take a course to work on my self-confidence. But what happened was I decided to climb Mount Everest. <laughs> so wait a minute. Wow. Okay. Because I, I want to get to this fate-filled filled moment when you are uh as you've called yourself a simple engineer and you're told about the empower nepali girls initiative and you agree to challenge the challenge of of climbing everest but two steps back you just said something interesting so a professor says to you you're lacking self-confidence was was the professor right yeah yeah i was extremely shy i was kind of a person i, w I was supposed to do a presentation in his class and i go to the in front of the class and there were only five students in the room it wasn't like a room full of 100 people and i start talking and i the, i say the first sentence i introduced myself and i forgot everything i couldn't even remember my whole project even though i did such a good job in that project I couldn't make an eye contact with anybody. I was just looking at the ground or looking at the ceiling. I totally forgot everything. But my professor, he knew that the, my project, because along the way he saw the updates and everything, I got an A+, plus, but he said, your self-confidence is extremely low and you have to go work on it. Because later on, when you go work as an electrical engineer, you have to be able to present in front of other people. And you have to be able to make an eye contact with the audience. And you didn't even look up once hmm. during the whole presentation. And there's only five people in the room. And they're your friends, your <laughs> classmates, your age. Right. Right. I just, I, I mean, I, I want to get to the story, but um, just parenthetically, has that professor, have you been in touch with that professor since, for example, you did a TED talk? <laughs> no. I'm, I, I'm, I'm imagining that they'd be quite no, impressed I with your progress. <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't. Maybe I should. That's a good idea. I think you might want to forward that, uh, forward a link to that professor. Um, it was a, it, <laughs> as I say, a fate-filled moment that that uh, uh, that he made that recommendation. So, so what happens with this? Um, what is it that you're told? What what what's the conversation that leads to you, somewhat randomly and astoundingly, saying, "Well, okay, I'm going to climb Everest." Well, I was just in this seminar. And I was on the second one, not the first one. And uh, the, the leader of the seminar said, come up with the project so big and huge beyond yourself, something impossible, something that you can't even think of doing in your wildest dreams. And I thought about a bunch of things, but none of them were as impossible as I wanted them to be. None of them inspired me. I just thought, well, you know, everybody else do all these things that comes to my mind. But somebody behind me started talking about Everest. And I just heard the word Everest and I thought, oh, perfect. That's it. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> so so based on somebody <laughs> saying the word Everest, you, you, I mean, you make a decision that's going to upturn your life. How did you know that you could climb mountains? I had no idea. I, I didn't know anything about mountain climbing. I just thought it's like 
در بندر درکی I just go <laughs> just go up and there are going to be restaurants there there's going to be you know I, I didn't know no, I you didn't no really idea. think that did, I mean, you, you, did you really think that the, whoever climbed anything you really thought there were going to be restaurants up there I mean you surely you, you, you knew that Everest is a that very few people have done this right um I okay I, I just thought it wouldn't be as hard as uh, they say it And I, and I thought, well, I'm very resilient. I can tolerate anything, so I can tolerate that too. I mean, you've said you were always skinny, short, not really an athlete. This seems like quite a leap for someone who's not already in training. For, for First of all, you're not climbing, you know, a, a small mountain in, in, uh, in, in you know, Venice Beach. You're, you're, you're climbing uh, Everest, right? So, so I'm just curious about the, this um, decision that you make, where in you this was rooted that you thought, yeah, I can do this. I mean, this is, this is an example of somebody believing in what others would consider the impossible. So what happened was I didn't do any research at the beginning about Everest. And, and I just thought, well, this is just the mountain that I climb. And as soon as I started researching about it and I read that it takes 60 days to climb it, um, I just left. I, I just uh, said that I'm not going to climb Everest because I, I don't even I wouldn't even travel to Italy for 60 days. Um, you know, who goes camping uh, on ice for 60 days. So like as soon as I realized it takes 60 days, I decided not to do it. But then um, there was this organization that I called and I uh, uh, asked them a lot of questions about mountain climbing. And they said, well, there are a bunch of other mountains that you have to climb in preparation for Everest. Go climb those. And if you still like it and if you still <laughs> think this is something you want to do, then call us back. And since they didn't say no and they said, well, there is a route and there are a bunch of other mountains close to you that you can practice on, then that, that gave me a lot of hope. And you start to do it and I guess fell in love with it? No, I, uh, I, at the beginning, no, I didn't fall in love with it. Who falls in love with uh, cold degrees and lack of oxygen? Well, you, for some dehydrate. reason, you're the one who's doing the seven summits. I mean, apparently there's something about it that gets you going, right? What I loved about it was that I could see the edge of myself. I could see the moment that I totally want to quit because it. Re I'm I'm a very resilient person. I don't quit. I just go for something and I never quit. And and the fact that I could see the end of myself, the edge of myself, and I really wanted to quit. I love seeing myself in that position of like that. That was the maximum challenge. I could see how I'm breaking down. Mm. And I uh, and I was learning so much from it because I realized every time that I get to this point, I just can expand it just a little bit more by staying on the edge for a little longer. And I uh, started falling in love with the edge of can, myself. Can I ask you about and, that? What, what, what does that mean, Sarah? What What is the edge of yourself? How would you, what does it look like? It, it looks like the moment that I want to quit everything and just go home and want to be comfortable. It's the moment that I want to put all my dreams aside and just want to go and have a burger instead of, you know, challenging myself and having dehydrated food and frozen food and all that. So it's the moment that my brain tells me this is the end of myself and I cannot take one more step. 
this is too cold, too inconvenient, too uncomfortable. We're not going to continue on. And I have to convince my brain that please, one more day, let's try a little harder. And, and that's the moment that, that I'm really growing and developing myself. So I fell in love with the growth and development yeah. Yeah. and all the lessons that I was learning on the mountain. Can you describe what the what the self-talk, I mean, I think we can all, uh, m maybe it's not necessarily related to climbing mountains, but it's uh, metaphorical mountains that we all have to climb. We can all relate to that feeling of what you've described as the edge of yourself and, and wanting to just quit or give up or go home or have the burger, as you say. Um, what, what is the self-talk you've learned around that? How do you get yourself out of that moment? How do you um, um, grow out of that moment and, and keep moving? So the brain is, respons is responsible for protecting us. So the very first thing that the brain wants to do when it comes to the edge, when it's at a point of breaking down, wants to take us to our comfortable place. And I learned to realistically show my brain that nothing will happen if we stay in the inconvenience or uncomfortable mode for a little longer. Well, you're, I just tell my brain, you're not going to die if we just sit here for a little while and just think about it and talk about it like the brain wants to see it black and white like you either can do this or you cannot mm -hmm. but i have to keep my brain in the gray area and i have to keep conversing and taking my time it's like a beautiful negotiation and a dance with myself that i have to keep myself in the state of unknown i mean you have to this transformation I sense begins to take place in you where you are um, putting yourself closer and closer to that edge of yourself, that end of yourself uh, as you start this climbing and as you start your, your journey to get to Everest. And I want to get to 2015 and Everest in a moment, but there's another element too, which is the cultural element of yourself transforming. I mean, you've said you were this shy Iranian girl. Suddenly you have to go around raising funds and asking for money to, to be able to pursue this. Tell me about how you coped with that. That was even harder than climbing Everest. You know, I was such a shy person. I wouldn't even go to my own mom and ask for 10 bucks. If I needed it, I would just wait around until I figure out something else. Hmm. But now I had to, I had to go to these perfect strangers and raise money for these other perfect strangers. And that was extremely challenging at the beginning. I was, uh, uh, I, I just had to realize that I start to create a team of people who have done this before and can help me. And just I, it was a very steep learning curve for me, learning how to do fundraising. I made tons of mistakes just trying to figure it out. And uh, but then, it, you know, uh, I realized that uh, that helped me so much developing my communication skills, negotiation skills, like all those skills that we need for daily uh, on daily basis for basic things and uh, so even though it was very challenging but I was very lucky to have people around me who could guide me and show me the way on how to do it and you know it's like I had to hear 100 no's to hear one yes uh, for like a sponsorship especially for donations and all that so you know you mentioned your mom 
um, I have to ask, how did your Persian parents, I mean, here you are, you arrive in America, you're on track to become a, um, a successful engineer and go into that streamlined life that was expected of you and that you expected of yourself. How did your mom, how did your parents react when you said, guess what, I'm actually going to try and climb Mount Everest? Well, I didn't tell them uh, at the beginning that I'm climbing because uh-huh. I just thought they they wouldn't understand what I'm up to and it doesn't make sense to them. So at the beginning, I would just say, well, I'm traveling to this country. I wouldn't say that I'm traveling for climbing. Like for them, they just thought I'm traveling. And, uh, and then I would come back and show them a bunch of pictures. But, you know, they still wouldn't share the story of what happened. Until they heard me on the radio. I was doing an interview on the radio and they just heard it. And they called me and they said, we just heard your interview and we had no idea <laughs> you're doing what you're doing. And uh, and then I had to tell them the whole story. And, um, you know, when I explained and I told them the story, it was very hard for them to understand, especially my dad. Uh, my mom, she was just looking at me like she cannot understand what is happening. But my, my dad was like, a straight no. Like, nope, you're not going to do that. You're going to go back to the regular life. Wow. And and then... Even I, though even though they'd heard you on the radio, have, even though you were obviously having some success with this, enough success to be on the radio, they they your your fears were realized that this is not something that initially that they, they would support. Yeah, because they wanted me to be safe and have a regular life. They just kept saying, why are you risking it? Why do you want to just risk all this success that it is guaranteed success? Why do you want to leave this and start something all over again? Uh, You've been working on this one for such a long time. It's not worth it. And, you know, um, you're you're not going to be happy at the end. They just wanted my happiness. This was all out of love. And I just had to keep telling them, thank you, thank you that I, I know you love me so much and I know you want me to be happy and safe and and everything, but my happiness is somewhere else and I, I have to do my life the way I want to do my life. But I have to keep repeating and just telling them how important this is for me. So in 2015, Sarah Safadi decides to climb Mount Everest. Um, did they know about that? Yes. They knew that I'm going to climb Mount Everest. Uh, my dad even uh, couldn't say goodbye to me because I called everybody from the airport to say goodbye. He is like, no, I told you not to go. I'm not going to even say goodbye to you. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, the hardest part of this is that some we some of us know the story of what happens and the tragic events of 2015. So uh, this in this case, it is your, your parents' worst fears realized, almost worst fears. I mean, um, thankfully, you... you came out of it but um explain what happened in in 2015 when you go to climb everest um i i guess you um, all things being equal it, it seemed like a you were on track everything was going okay and what happens tell us yeah everything was going so perfectly the best team everything was on uh, uh like on the schedule and then uh as I told you, it takes 60 days to climb Everest. On day 25, we are supposed to go up to the next camp. So it takes 10 days to walk to the base camp, 10 days of practicing to get to the next camp, just because 
it, there are 50 ladders over very deep crevasses that you can't even see the bottom. And this is the most dangerous part of Everest called Kumbu Icefall. So, so and, sorry, Sarah, one second. Let me just tell you, how many of you are there? Six of us. There's six of you. And be, because I've read the John Krakauer book, uh, <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, d- d- you are, you're with a couple of Sherpas, you're with a couple of guides that have done this or something? How, how yeah. does, who are the six people? Yeah, so six people are just the six climbers. We are from all over the world and we are going to climb Everest together. We have two American guides who are helping us. They're speaking English and all that because everybody else were English is speaking. And then there are a group of Sherpas that we don't meet them until we are on the base camp. So right. um, they are, they actually, uh, they go set off the base camp because base camp is like a city. There are thousands, there are thousand people live there for the months of April and May, and which the base is the camp, season the, for the, Everest. The base camp is not the bottom of the mountain. It's, it's like a midway or something, right? It is 17,000 feet, but it is the bottom of the mountain. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's 17,000 feet, though. Uh, this is where we set up everything to go up the mountain. Okay. And every now and then, we don't climb the mountain once. We climb the mountains four times. So we go up so that the body get acclimatized to a certain elevation. Then we come back down, rest in the base camp again. We go up again a little oh, bit wow. higher, we come oh. down. We just go back and forth until the body is ready for high elevation. Okay. Yeah, so uh, the Sherpas, they are there in the base camp, and we meet them again on the summit day when we actually go to the top, which is like 40 days after the first time we meet them. And they are, they are up there. They help us with the oxygen tanks because everybody has like two or three oxygen tanks. And yeah, the Sherpa, if you pay for it, because the expedition by expedition, company by company is different. Some people hire a Sherpa. Some people um, get oxygen. Some people don't get oxygen. Most of the people do, though. Uh, and as your Sherpa, if you hire one, will help you with, the, with your oxygen tanks. Okay. And uh, that's extra, extra money that people have to pay. Anyways, so uh, this is about the Sherpas. But we, when we, six of us together, the six climbers, we are together throughout the whole time. So we walk up, we get to the base camp, and then we have to practice crossing ladders over crevasses in the base camp. Okay. And that's how, the way it works is these uh, ladders are kind of wobbly, and they are just fixed on ice. And when we walk across them, uh, we are holding on to the ropes, but the ropes are also wobbly. And so it's kind of, it takes at least 10 days for a regular climber to get used to uh, crossing these ladders uh, safely. So we go back and forth, we practice uh, the ladders until everybody in the team are comfortable enough that they can carry a heavy backpack and walk over the ladders. And by the way, is it is it cold at the base camp or not until you get higher? Um, it's like the coldest that I've experienced was like negative 10, negative 15 degrees. Okay. Yeah, so um, it, it is cold, but then we have enough gear, good gear for negative 40 and even colder. So negative 10, even though it's very uncomfortable, 
but uh, we have good gear that wouldn't uh, right. bother. But you, us. you're not you're not running around in t-shirts at the base camp. This is well. <laughs> to to be honest, at one p.m. when the sun hits your tent, your tent is just so small, and then the sun hits your tent. Inside the tent becomes so warm that I definitely I'm in t-shirts. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, so you're doing what, the ladder practice, and and then and then mm-hmm. tell us. Go ahead. Yeah, so we cross these ladders until we are comfortable, and then the day that the weather is good, we go up all the way to Camp One, and that's when the seven point eight earthquake struck us. When the day on the day twenty five of the climb, when we decided to go up to Camp One. So were you um, on the way to the to, to, to Camp One, or were you at the base camp when the earthquake happened? No, I was on the way. I was climbing an ice wall. So as I told you, Kumbu Ice Wall is a part of the mountain that is so gorgeous and beautiful. It's the most dangerous part of the mountain, but it is gorgeous at the same time. It it looks like pieces of ice the size of a building the size of a car are hanging in 45 degrees over you and at any moment even without a 7.8 earthquake they can just break down and fall on your head and uh, so we even without a 7.8 earthquake when we are climbing kumbu i saw they tell us do it as fast as you can because it's dangerous because there are so many avalanches that can happen uh, in kumbu i saw uh, so if we are going up, I'm going up a wall. There is a wall. If have you watched Game of Thrones? Yeah, yeah, of course. Oh, the, yeah. The, so that ice wall that yeah. they have, I'm climbing straight up. Something straight up, to that. basically straight up. Yeah, yeah. But by the way, and I'm I'm getting anxiety just listening to this. Like I I, I, <laughs> I don't know how. I mean, I'm freaking out a little bit. I don't know how you. I can't even. I I can't. I can't even imagine this. But okay, so you're you're climbing up an ice wall with six people in the middle of nowhere on on Mount Everest. And go ahead. Yes. So this is twenty thousand feet. Twenty thousand feet. It's. It's so hard to breathe at 20,000 feet. There's lack of oxygen. It's cold. It is, was it snowing. I have two, three jackets on. I have a heavy backpack on. Um, you know, so we're going up and I'm on the wall. Only one person at a time goes on the wall because one person goes, you finish the wall and then the next person comes because there's only one rope and one person can be at a time on, the, on that rope. Okay. So I'm going up, then there are a bunch of ladders. I go up the ladder and I'm about to finish the ladders to really climb up uh, the, the section that there is no ladder. Yeah, there were five ladders connected to each other. And I, on top of the fifth ladder, to finish the wall, to pass the edge when the 7.8 earthquake struck us. So the whole wall started shaking left and right and left and right. First, I thought, well, okay, it's the ladder. The ladder is very loose, and you know, they like come up. They probably will come and fix it for me. Blah blah. I was just like the first thing I was. I just thought this is nothing. I shouldn't be very scared. And then, like coming from California, I, the horizontal movement felt like the California earthquakes, like how. You know, this happens like once a week kind of a movement. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, no, 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 this is an earthquake. This is like the movement is just feels like an earthquake. 
And and then as soon as I thought that everything started breaking down. So I lost visibility because like all the pieces of ice and the snow and the glacier around me started breaking down and falling on me. And everything is uh, happening just so fast. I I was breathing so fast and it was hard, so hard to breathe because there was so much snow in the air. I was breathing snow in. And sorry, and you're you're and you're you're, you're hanging air. on to the side of the mountain. I am hang, hanging on to the edge. Actually, I am connected to the rope, so uh, everything is moving. Uh, my, my, I'm on the ice. Yes, I'm hanging on to the oh side my God. of the mountain. And can you hear? Yeah. Are you communicating? Can you hear your 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 com- companions? Or is anybody s- screaming? Or what, what's happening? Yeah, they were yelling and they were telling me things to do. But I kind of lost the understanding of la- English language. I couldn't understand anything. People were telling me things, but I, you know, they were so loud. The pieces of ice were breaking down. It felt like I'm standing on a runway and a jet just t- took off. Right. You know, the le- noises were so loud that in between the those noises, I could hear people yelling, but I couldn't tell what they're saying. And even if I could tell what they were saying, I had no understanding of English language at that moment. Okay. <laughs> And and then uh, so everything was just shaking. I couldn't see anything. I couldn't breathe. Um, I started kicking my feet. I climbed up really fast. I passed the edge. There was an anchor there. I knew there was an anchor. So I clipped myself to the anchor and I thought, well, definitely this is not enough. I saw myself that I'm being covered with the snow. I thought, okay, this is it. The avalanche is coming. I'm going to be covered uh, and the avalanche will hit me in the chest. I'm going to fall down the wall and fall into a crevasse and and that's it. This is the end. You you and, you expected uh, at this point that you're going to die. Yeah. I, I, I was still had like 1% hope thinking, what if I come up with the technique somehow to keep myself on the wall? So I started kicking my feet to the ice. You remember I had crampons on, so I had the spiky shoes. Right. So if I could somehow keep myself on the ice, maybe avalanche wouldn't take me. That I was just trying to be positive at that moment, even though I was scared and I was... Uh, really like i had no idea what i was doing um i was i started wrapping the ropes around my arm like clipping myself one more time but then there was this moment that i thought no way everything that i'm doing wouldn't make a difference the avalanche is coming the avalanche is much much stronger than all of this the avalanche can even take the anchor and i would go down with the anchor and all these ropes i and then that was the moment that I decided to, um, I just thought there is no way that I can do anything about this. So, Sarah, let me just ask you, in your training, I guess you, this must have come up that there's, is it is it obvious that when there's an earthquake, there's going to be an avalanche? I know that's probably a stupid question, but do you, did you, is it, is that an expectation that, okay, I've just felt an earthquake, things are falling, there's going to be some huge avalanche coming? Um. No, actually, I never got a training about that. We have transceivers on, which means if an avalanche comes, we never talk about the earthquake, but we talk about avalanches. Hmm. And we have transceivers on, which is a kind of an instrument that sends signals. So another fellow climber that has the transceiver on, they can find me in the avalanche. 
Okay. But in that situation, I would it wouldn't be a normal avalanche. But you seem to know you. But you're saying you you expected there was going to be an avalanche. How did you know? Uh, because I saw the snow is building up on ah, me, ah. and I thought, well, this part of the mountain is very famous for its avalanches. Even oh, without the earthquake, a lot of people died. Like in 2014. Without the earthquake, there was an avalanche and 16 Sherpas died. Yes, And yes. these are the amazing Sherpas who climbed the mountain a bunch of times before. Yes, I've been reading. There, there, there's two fa- famous uh, earthquakes and avalanches in the last few decades. They, they were 2014 and then 2015, the one that happened with, when you're hanging onto the side of the ice on the wall. I mean, the, my, the Persian uh, you know, brother in me is kind of going, what, 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 what are you doing? Why were you there? I'm with your dad on this one. What, but um, um, okay, so I mean, thankfully we're talking to you now. So, so tell us what happens next. Next. Um, and and then I there was this moment that I completely gave up and I thought there is no way that I can survive this I'm gonna fall down and I'm gonna be buried alive under the snow and this is the end I I better accept it this is how I'm gonna go and the moment that I accepted it and I thought this is how I'm gonna go everything stopped everything stopped uh, uh, we just had to regroup because there are more most of the climbers were down the wall we only had two climbers up the wall so we had everybody else had to climb the wall come up we had to regroup and we couldn't go down because uh we were much closer to the next camp rather than lower camp and we heard from the radio that in the lower camp uh, 20 people died so we better not even go down and uh, in the base camp they received a very big avalanche and it was just a disaster so they said just Continue going up. So the people below you died. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, and uh, so, do you find this out while you're on the like in that moment? You you're you're hearing it on the radio. You you're finding this out. Like that's a that's a scary thing in and of itself to hear to know that those who are at lower levels from you have been killed from this avalanche. How did you respond to that? Uh, I, I didn't know when I was hiking up, climbing up to the next camp. I heard it after I got there, okay. but I was just so traumatized. I could, could hear the radio, but nothing made sense. I was just, I was kind of so shocked. I have no idea how I climbed uh, the rest of the mountain, like that three hours to get to the next camp. It was like a crazy mountain climbing. We had to Cross the ladders again, climb the ladders, ladders again. It was like a technical mountain climbing, and I was gone. I wasn't even there. Um, I was crying. I was just thinking about what just happened. I don't know how I did it. I have no idea how that three hours I made it to the next camp. Even though I have pictures that I look at them, I'm like, I look so normal in the picture, but I know I was very traumatized. So, like after this, this terrifying event. You still have to climb for three hours to, to even get to solid to, to a camp to get somewhere. Yeah, and then it the next camp wasn't even safer. Did the other six people make it? Yeah. So my team we made it uh, on that day, but there are so many other people who that twenty people who died. Some of them I knew. Like one of them was actually uh, a friend from UCLA that we went together. Um, and she was in a different team, but she was sitting in her tent. And oh, uh, the avalanche that came uh, 
took her tent and hit it against the wall of Everest. And that's how she passed. It was just, I didn't know any of this until we came back down to the base camp. Yeah. Uh, and people told me that your brewing friend. And it was just, it was so um, surreal. Because, you know, a few days before we were celebrating actually starting the season because 2014 was devastating. 16 Sherpas died. Everybody was mourning that and still grieving. Even the Sherpas, we had a ceremony right before we go up for the 16 Sherpas of the last year. And then we finished the ceremony and then we decided to go up and this happened. Yeah. so, so when you come, uh, I mean, I, I'm getting, this is, you've called this moment a turning point in your life. I mean, I, <laughs> I no, no one listening uh, is surprised that this would be a turning moment point in anyone's life in terms of the, the perspective or the, that, you know, the, the new view of, of, uh, of life, the prism with, with, which you're seeing the world through after an experience like this. Um, when uh, obviously I want to get to how you, have decided to keep climbing after such a harrowing experience. But first tell me uh, what happened when you returned to to um, the U.S. and and how you were processing this and, and the people around you and uh, your parents. I mean, I guess everybody must have just been completely devastated and, and, and concerned about this. What was life like for the first few months after this happened? I was extremely traumatized. I was crying randomly. Any shake would make me feel like I'm in the earthquake. It was just, everything was really hard. And I I felt so guilty that I survived it because that day 10,000 people died and a lot of 100,000 people lost their homes. So the fact that I survived it being on the place that I was on the mountain, I, um, I, I felt so guilty and, and I was actually a very busy trying to do fundraising for the girls that survived it and trying to build back their homes and their school and providing just basic stuff, food and things for them. And I, I was just, I wasn't uh, very present and I wasn't even attempting to um, uh, try to heal myself or work on my trauma. I was just like a mad person running around trying to do fundraising. I, uh, and at, at night, I would just cry and think about um, the moments that happened and the, the faces of the girls or like other people that I saw them, all the blood that I saw on the mountain, on the jackets of mountain climbers who were rescuing uh, the injured people. It was just all those scenes, all those pictures. And, and But then at one moment, after a couple of months, I thought, you know, I the only way that I can heal myself is just write everything down, all the emotions, all the thoughts, all the stories, everything that took me to this moment, all the stories of those Nepali girls that inspired me to do such a thing. Why did I even do this? And just try to understand all the motives and everything. And I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I published my book and when I was ready to share some of my very personal stories in my life with the rest of the world, that was when I felt healed. I felt like at least all those trauma didn't go to waste and mm-hmm. I used it. I'm using it somehow to help others. It's quite a decision to 
to endeavor to, to begin climbing again, and in fact, to make the decision to take another shot at Everest or do the seven summits. Um, when did you make that decision that you want to start climbing again? After my book was published and I started doing a book tour, uh, in one of my book tours, uh, I was kind of talking about my trauma to one of the people in my audience who stayed longer to talk to me. And and she said, you know, at least uh, you are, um, I, I was kind of complaining about, oh, I trained so hard to get to the top of that mountain and I never made it. And 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 then she's like, if if this is the story you want to live by, well, go ahead. And and then that was that was the moment that I realized this is such a gift uh, in terms of, you know, I can be a victim of what happened to me or I can that can be a gift to me and I can use it to do so many other things. And and then I realized I don't want to teach the girls to quit when the, the <sighs> bad things happen in your life and I didn't want to teach them to to quit after that so I said you know what I announced to the girls first actually that I'm going to come back to Nepal and climb Everest again uh, and not just Everest this time and not just for uh, empower Nepali girls I'm going to add six more mountains for six more organizations you know in uh, Nepal they have uh, cast uh Cast, which means like there are different groups of people from different backgrounds, some Indian, some Hindu, some like, with different religions. And uh, it, it's kind of in the government or in the society, people who can uh, be more successful, get opportunities, find a good job. They have to be from a certain caste. Yes. And and then I uh, and I realized I by by starting fundraising for uh, people from all the continents, from U.S. and Africa and Middle East and Afghanistan and all these other countries, if I can introduce this to the girls, they it's kind of would be a good lesson for them to realize how the caste system in Nepal is dysfunctional. And that would be a good lesson for them in those terms too, um, if I make sense. So uh, it's kind of uh, that this is how it happened. Uh, I, I announced that I'm going to climb the seven summits for seven organizations for empowering women. And um, as soon as I decided to do it, I started my training. And um, that's that's how I decided to do seven summits. I wanted to ask about that. I was actually going to ask you a couple more questions about what you've, uh, what you've learned from from the trauma and from um, from climbing in general, but maybe I'll come back to them in, in just a sec before we end off. But let me ask you, since you brought it up and, and we're on the topic right now, about this um, uh, empowering women and, and the missions that you've taken on, and particularly about the Empowering Girls, the Nepali Girls mission, uh, and the global issue of, of child marriage and, and human trafficking. You know, we've discussed it a bit on our show. We had the activist and rapper Sonita Alizadeh on recently talking mm -hmm. about child brides in Afghanistan and how brave she is in terms of speaking out about that. She was uh, going to be a child bride until she sort of escaped that situation. Um, Sarah, why is this something in particular that has inspired you to speak out? Tell me about what, what it was uh, what, learning about the life and uh, of these Nepali girls and child marriage that really made that something that you wanted to bring awareness around. Well, first of all, when I heard that it's so easy to make a difference in Nepal, I mean, like countries on that side of the world, like with $170, one girl can go to school one whole year. 
And $170, if you're like a group of four here in the U.S., go to dinner. And for me, I realized that if I can just skip a dinner, I can help a girl for one whole year. So just the fact that it is so easy to help a girl for one whole year, that made me think that this is doable. Because a lot of these uh, amazing, great projects that uh, many people are working on, when, you know, when people hear about it, the very first thing that they think, well, this is too hard and too big and I'm not going to even take a step right, towards right. it. How can I make a difference? But, yeah. Yeah. But by breaking it down into just, I'm going to help just one girl, uh, that may it, may, it look like a much, much an easier project for mm -hmm. me. And, and I realized like if I want to raise $1 per foot of Everest, Everest is 29,000 feet, that would be $29,000. And that will help 150 girls. And I just thought, well, if I just do this, I'll be happy. And and that's uh, that's how like the easiness of it, like breaking it down into very small steps, that mm -hmm. helped me really to be even more motivated to do such a thing. Because everybody are, have a good heart and everybody wants to help other people. The only reason that it doesn't happen because it looks like a very big project. And and uh, that's that's that was my first motivation because it was so easy to help them. And then the second one because I grew up in Iran, I experienced it firsthand for myself, and I saw women around me experiencing discrimination and never achieving their goals. And just watching that made me want to do some uh, this project for other girls. Um, doesn't matter where they are from, but I just wanted to do this. Then when I m met these girls and I saw their beautiful faces. And their pure eyes, like I could see myself in every single one of these girls. And I just, I kind of did it for my little self. I did it for my little sisters and yeah. my little neighbors. It was very personal. I just wanted to do it really for little Sarah who wanted to do certain things and she couldn't do. And then she was lucky because she moved to the US and I just wanted to provide at least education for these girls so they don't become victims of human trafficking or forced to get married at a very young age. You know, there's a, there's a piece in the New York Times today, I don't know if you've seen it yet, saying that the global pandemic has caused a new rise in child marriages and human trafficking because, because desperate families in economic despair you know, are turning to selling their daughters as a way to deal with their their current crisis. Are you are you in touch with regular reports of progress or regression? I guess in this case, when it comes to this issue, yeah, a lot of women they had to quit their jobs and just stay at home because now they had to uh, uh, to take care of the older family members or the kids, and they uh, even. Like some of the girls, they had to quit university because now most of the family members are home and they have to help their mom with the errands, with cooking and cleaning and all that. So, uh, yes, yes, that's something that is happening globally, sadly. You know, you, your story is so inspiring that it's, it was somewhat shocking for me to learn that uh, along with speaking out about women's empowerment, you've also become an embodiment of why you need to speak out because you've received some backlash for doing what you do, for even for being a mountain climber. What what do these people say? Well, uh, a lot of people wouldn't understand why I would risk my life uh, to take care of or help other people, and uh, especially people that I that I don't know really. Uh, 
and and then this is this is not this ha- and then this happened all over the world i get negative comments from people from all over the world they're saying well you were an electrical engineer you could have a happy comfortable life why are you even doing this that doesn't make sense why don't you just get married and have a couple of kids and just live a normal life and we, they wouldn't understand why somebody would risk their life uh, to do such a thing um so um Again, as I told you at the very beginning, I think uh, I feel very responsible for doing uh, the work that I'm doing because I feel fortunate that I had the chance to um, pursue my dreams and do the things that I really care about. And I think that least the minimum thing that I can do for others is just to share with them and try to help them to gain a little bit of opportunities to pursue their dreams or at least see their dreams and take a step towards it. Sarah, have you heard from people in Iran? Are they aware of your exploits? I, I can only imagine you have some fans among uh, uh, the folks in Iran if they find out that uh, you know, you're destined to be the first Iranian who's climbed seven summits. What do you hear coming out of the country of our ancestry? Um, I published my book in Farsi in Iran in 2017. Uh, that was my first book. I still haven't published the rest of my books in Iran. But uh, yeah, I had actually recently, last year, I went to Iran and I was I, kind of a book tour in Tehran and I had a bunch of talks about my experiences of climbing mountains and, and all that. Um it's uh it's beautiful there are so many great things that are happening and um um i i just thought like the people that i met the amazing organizations that i was uh i i visited um it's it just they really inspired me and um you know at like at one point actually in tehran i I decided that, you know, I just want to stay here. <laughs> I don't want to go back to the U.S. There's so much that I can do here. But, well, I'm here. <laughs> it, must have, um, it must have felt inspiring to go back and be feted for doing something that you were breaking a mold and doing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was very inspiring. Before I let you go, I I. I have to ask you about the big life lessons. I mean, you've intimated already. It's funny, you're an engineer when uh, you and I in a previous conversation, I said, is it more physical or mental, uh, you know, the mountain climbing? And, and you gave me a, the, an answer in percentages. You were like, well, it's, I think it's about 64% mental. <laughs> I was thinking, this, this woman really is an engineer. You reminded me of my, my, my dear late dad, who was also an engineer. Um, uh, you know, what, what have you learned about um, life in terms of physical endurance, if you were to be able to teach us the wisdom that you've learned literally on a mountain, the, the, the physical endurance and life as a mental game, um, what, would you, what would you tell us that um, you've learned? I would say that we are all work in progress. We are all learning and changing every day and our standards are changing every day and just learning to be comfortable with the change and accepting the change and uh, uh, be more open to to see the see new things and experiencing new things in our life is one of the most important things because in the mountain everything is so uncertain and unstable and at any moment the weather can change and uh, the, one of the teammates can get sick and the whole plan can turn around. But 
what I learned was that just get uh, comfortable with being in the unknown, being comfortable, uh, being in uncharted waters without seeing the beach and just being able to hold myself in that space helped me learn a lot and uh, kind of uh, see new ways and new experiences the way I couldn't see when I'm very fixed to a certain standard. So uh, I, I, would, I would say just uh, don't be scared of unknown. Try to keep yourself in the unknown as much as you can. I love that. Feel comfortable being in the unknown. I guess this is related to, you said in your TEDx talk that we should all find our own Everest to climb. Um, I, I don't think you were suggesting that we should all be mountain climbers. Can you explain what you meant when you were talking about that? Yeah, exactly. I named my uh, TEDx talk, Climb Your Everest, because every day we have our own Everest, and every day we are climbing a new Everest and continuing climbing the previous Everest. And Everest can be our relationship, it can be our job, promotion, education, whatever we are dealing with. And uh, along the way, if we just look at it as a mountain that we are climbing, we can learn so much. We, if we change our view towards our obstacles, uh, we can. it can help us. We can look at, look at it as gifts that we are learning from rather than just negative things that are impacting us in a bad way. So a final question. When we started this um, very uh, interesting interview that I'm, I'm so grateful to you for, for what you've imparted, um, for the story you've shared, for the, some of the wisdom you've shared and for the time you've given us. Um, I called you an overachiever <laughs> and you said, well, not really because I'm not tied to outcomes. Um, so, is Sarah Safari happy with where she is now, or will you feel more satisfied with the outcome of summiting Everest if you can do that? I'm very happy, fulfilled, and satisfied, and content. I don't have to climb Mount Everest, but I'll do it because uh, this is on behalf of all the people in the world in the world who want to climb Mount Everest, and for some reason they don't have the opportunity for all the people who want to do the seven summits and somehow they don't have the opportunity this is for all of them including myself and uh, I the learning that I that I'm getting I'm not attached to the result I don't have to stand on top of Everest but the beauty of it is along the way I'm meeting so many interesting people I'm having this conversation with you right now and uh, I'm helping so many other people, uh, strong women around the world that they've been through so much. And maybe my story of trying and trying and trying uh, would inspire them and help them to make their uh, hard days a little bit easier. Do you know when you're going to try to scale Everest again? I'm going to try every year until I can. <laughs> So when, like, so do you have a plan for 2021? 2021, if the mountains are open. Oh, right. The mountain has to be open. Oh. <laughs> well, um, yeah. please, and, and how, are your parents okay with it at this point, or are they still trying to prevent you from going back to Everest yet again? Uh, 
No, they still don't like it. Actually, they still they. My mom told me actually, you for me, you've already summited Everest. You've accomplished what you wanted yes, to accomplish. Yes, as you don't. Have to go it's there. enough, please. We we're yeah. all proud of you, um, uh, Sarah. You, thank you so much. You're inspiring. I mean, I I I hope that um, we will hear about you um, hitting the summit of Everest uh, before too long, only because um, you want that uh, as well uh, as part of your journey. But so much of what you've shared has been so great, and I can't wait to hear more about it and stay in touch. Thank you for this today. Thank you so much for having me. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Sarah Safadi, author, speaker, mountain climber, college professor, electrical engineer, and advocate for women's empowerment. She has set her goal to become the first Iranian in history to climb the seven summits. Sarah Safadi joined us from Irvine, California today. Back on for uh, Groovy Shia, Captain Reza, the fabulous Keon. Wow, huh? <laughs> She's pretty impressive. I'm blown away. Yeah, I, I was actually getting anxiety at that point. I mean, that it was so vivid—the story of her halfway up the mountain, hanging onto the ice. You know, when she's talked about it being like Game of Thrones, like that—that yes. that straight up mountain of ice. Keon, what do you have to say? What do you have to say for yourself? I have so much respect <laughs> for Persian women that go against the norm. Like, you know, her parents are saying, oh, like she was talking about her childhood and how she wanted to always, you know, do more. And her parents would say, you know, you shouldn't play with boys. You shouldn't play soccer. Um, always trying to limit her. And she went against that. She grew up and, you know, wouldn't listen to anybody and just did what she felt she needed to do in life. And... I just, I have so much respect for her. And she, like, after all that, after the avalanche, after all that, she still <laughs> has the audacity to want to climb. Let's go back up the mountain. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's quite remarkable. Insane. Uh Kruvi Shai, you want to say anything? Um, <laughs> actually, no, I'm speechless, but I'm thinking, actually, to find my Everest. That's really mm -hmm. powerful. Yeah. yeah. Do you yeah. know what it is yet? A lot of things, but I don't know which one is Everest. Mm -hmm. no. yeah. I have them of hands. Some of them, yeah. Some of them are shorter mountains. I don't know yeah. which one is Everest. Uh, and Captain Reza? For me, it was like watching a movie. Like when she was talking about snow was hitting my face. I couldn't see anymore. I was yeah. dangling from the side. I'm like, and what happened next? Like, <laughs> tell me more. I'm like, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Such a great story. I saw your faces. I yeah, could see through right? the, across the glass when, when she was saying that. Uh, yeah, I mean, she's... Uh, I was getting anxious. Yeah, yeah it was, it was, know, it's quite a story. Yeah, I always wonder what drives someone to climb Everest. You know, it takes years to train and prepare for it. And it's extremely expensive, as I mm. mentioned. So what makes someone want to complete such a difficult expensive and time-consuming feat it's uh, <laughs> well uh, uh, she from what what she's did were you listening to the interview i was listening yeah, okay, to I'm it but still sure. but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know what, like, she said that she actually racked her brain for what's the greatest 
what would be the greatest challenge for me? What would send me the most out of my comfort zone? And she heard somebody say Everest, and she was mm. like, that's it. I so, guess, I mean, she's literally found her Everest in yeah. Everest. You know? So I guess it's it's testing your human ability on this earth, like going for that big, I, I guess that's what she's saying, when find your Everest, that big that is what she's thing saying. to, yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's time for a brand new segment here on Rook. And let me just do the introduction by saying she is a woman of letters, Rook letters, that is. A dear friend, a diaspora blend, a gym fanatic, and a redhead who can be erratic, but lovable and funny and on a journey to discover what we actually discovered. Here we go, Batchaha. It's all Persian to us with Kian Nadami. Oh, nice music. I wish I could bishkan to that. Just one correction, Gian. Yes. I'm not a redhead. It's light brown, okay? Oh, I like to think of you as a red. Is it really not redhead? <laughs> I mean, uh, people say, a... people call me a redhead, All but right. it's actually light. Anyway, All not, not. Right. How do you know that I didn't say redhead in quotes when I said it? Uh-huh. It's all Persian to us with Kian Nadami. What uh, what do you have for us today? Khob, let me begin by reiterating that as someone that grew up outside of Iran, um, I, I think you can relate to this, Gian. We've always been on this lifelong journey to reconnect with our roots and understand understand this beautiful yet very complicated culture that we have. Our non-redhead roots, yes. <laughs> Precisely. Right. So based on this, I thought we'd try something new on the show and go on a little journey of discovery together. Okay. So you guys know how Persians like to claim that basically everything that was ever created <laughs> on earth was in fact mm. first invented by the Persians. That's right. You know, you, you've heard this, yes, right? Yes, yes. My, my parents being included in that. Yes. Well, it turns out it's true. I'm kidding, I'm kidding, of course I'm kidding. But once in a while, there is in fact some truth to this claim right. when it comes to certain things. So you are going to be, if I understand this correctly, you are going to be explaining to us the things that we actually did discover yes. in Iranian, not just the things that we claim, yes. but you are gonna credibly give us empirical evidence to or suggest why we discovered these so things. So every week I will bring something new, something that does in fact have Persian roots. Every week? I thought we were yes. just starting the segment. Well, today. let's test Settle it down, out. <laughs> Let's see how it goes. Every week, get a lot of this. All right. So what's that? So four times a week, I will be bringing. <laughs> so every day on. <laughs> you only have two episodes a week. What's going on? Listen, let's just uh, let's walk before you run, run, young Jedi. No, that for sure. Every week, let's. What do we do? You got? Let's uh, let's, let's start oh. it off here. Yeah. So, oh. so question oh. for you guys: What's yeah. that thing that you receive at the door once in a while? And no, Reza, not an escort. Oh. <laughs> oh. No rest. But you wrote that joke. There's a little yeah. hint. Oh, um, so we've learned a lot about Reza so far. <laughs> no, I'm uh, of course joking. But yes, something that what's the thing that turns up on the door. doorstep? Mail, post. Yes, yes, you Mail? got it. There you Mail? go. Oh. Mail wow. actually has Persian origins. Did you know that? No, I let no me idea. elaborate. The first credible claim of the development of a postal system actually comes from ancient Persia dating back to 550 BC. The first king of Persia, the king of kings, and my personal favorite Persian man in history, Cyrus the Great, oh. mandated that every province in the kingdom organize reception and delivery of posts to each of its citizens. He even negotiated with neighboring countries to do the same and had roads built from the city of, and get this, Post in Western Iran all the way up to the city of Hakka in the Far East. Wait a second, hang on. 
I didn't make that You're up. saying that the, it, but is that the where the word post comes from? Uh, that's what I was thinking. I could not find something that said 100% that's where it came from, but I, I mean. What? So Cyrus the Great. Yes. Is that was that your favorite man in, in Iranian I man mean, history? Isn't, isn't he Does everybody's? the doctor know about this? <laughs> I did. Right. He's a little jealous. <laughs> okay. <but laughs> Cyrus the Great was the first person to. Yeah. So Cyrus the Great mandated that every single province in the kingdom organize reception and delivery of. Okay, so that's, it's not the invention of letters, but it, but no. moving them from one place to another. Yes, exactly. A, a like mailing, a postal, a postal system. system. Yes, oh exactly. wow! Exactly. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So uh, so the, this is how it worked. So it worked using uh, stations called Shapar where the message carrier or the chapar would ride to each post where he'd swap with a fresh horse for maximum performance and speedy delivery. The system was so impressive that the ancient Greek historian Herodotus even wrote about it. His quote was adapted and rephrased into the current motto of the U.S. Po uh, Postal Service. And I quote, neither snow nor rain nor heat nor gloom of night stays these couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. Sorry, who said that? This is Herodotus, the Greek historian. Okay. Yeah. And there you have not it. Not a Persian. No, not he a Persian. He didn't come up with but, that slogan, But he was right. so fascinated by the system uh -huh. that he, he quoted. So uh, what was it called? The, the, what, the, the, the stations, what were they called? So they were called Chapar Khanes. Chapar? Chapar Khanes. Chapar. 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 Oh, there yeah. we go. Chapar Khanes. <laughs> houses of Chapar. What's Chapar? Yes. Uh, I think Chapar, if I'm not wrong, it's referred to Charpa. Oh. And uh, yeah, like... Mm. Interesting. Charpa. Charpa. Like four legs? Four, 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 yeah. legged, mm -hmm. like four leg horses. 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 So, horses. Refers horses. To horses. so the message carriers were called chapars. Uh -huh. Yeah. So. Yeah, but but maybe I'm wrong. I, I, I think you're right. It sounds no. right to me. Okay. Let's so that. That, that, very interesting. Yeah. So so the mailing system uh, that the entire world now uses yes. was first developed in, in by Cyrus the Great 2,500 exactly. years ago. Yes. From using, uh, including the town post. Yes, that's where. Did you know this, Reza? No, I didn't. But when she said that, I was like, "That's what we call, like in Farsi. We say like postkon bastar, oh. like mail it. But we say posteshkon. Did you post this letter? We don't say mail this letter. Yeah, but that's not from. You but think that's from like, the that's town twenty five hundred years ago? No, but I'm thinking so. But that's probably a Farsi word to for like throughout this time. Like I the whole time I thought mm. like that we adapted it from an from English, but. That's interesting. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. Did you figure? Uh, Do you know anything about that? Where the word "post" comes from? I I actually looked into it. There's no credible claim that it does, but I can only imagine that it mm. probably does come from that. Oh. The word "post." Yeah. Well, but there's, there's no nothing credible claim. Let's claim it. <laughs> yeah, let's just claim it. <laughs> but I'm sure one of our listeners can probably confirm. I feel this. like you need a tag statement at the end of it. Like, and, oh, you got one? Yeah. Okay, go ahead. So I, I thought you were done. No, All right, keep going. All right. And there you have it. The postal system was first invented by the Persians. It's all Persian to us. Oh! Whoa. Love it. The inaugural installment of It's All Persian to Us, where we've learned that the postal system and the uh, Chapar Khanes <laughs> uh, were... Uh, all came out of uh, Canada, Canada, something that we can legitimately call our own. Yes, we definitely can. Well done, Kian Nademi. 
also the fabulous Keon. They're the same person, folks. Uh, thank you for that. And uh, thank you, Captain Reza. Thank you, Groovy Shy. This is full time for Rook for today. Uh, remember, our website for all things Rook is rookmedia.com. Thanks to the amazing uh, team who put this show together each week. Producer Susan Ponce of the Artist, Thoughtful Nagin, the fabulous Keon, Savvy Roham, Aray Mertad, uh, Master Muhammad, Captain Reza Groovy Shia. Thank you to all of you out there supporting us, sharing our content. Please subscribe if you've not done so already. And you can find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. Okay, so we're going to go out on a song. I told you about earlier in the show, a new tune from our dear friend and the extremely talented jazz musician, piano player, composer, and wait for it, heart surgeon, Dr. Arshid Azadine in Paris. Arshid was on our sixth episode ever of Rook. We are big fans, and now he has a, a brand new song that I think is absolutely beautiful. Arshid composed the music. His mom wrote the lyrics, and the great vocalist Malkon Ashkvari is the singer on this song. Take a listen to Chisti from Arshid Azarin. Thanks again for listening. Mizun Bashid. در هر نگاه تو میسوزانیان با سوز تو بارانی تو برغورد هستی تو دخت ماه تو فرزند دو زلف آسمانی تو Show sure.
Oh, yeah.